Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Robert Ludlum is a now-deceased, prolific, very readable novelist who wrote in 1980 the book The Bourne Identity. In 2002, Matt Damon starred as Jason Bourne in The Bourne Identity. Two years later, a first sequel, The Bourne Supremacy, was made by many of the same filmmakers, itself borrowing the narrative from Ludlum's sequel novel The Bourne Supremacy from 1986. The gist is that we have a CIA special operative, Jason Bourne, a pseudonym for a man called David Webb. The trouble is, Jason Bourne was lost on a mission, conked on the head, and has amnesia. He does not know who he is. That is his primary psychological directive and problem, uncovering himself. And as he begins to have misadventures, largely because his former controllers want him dead, he's constantly being hunted. This prey-predator dynamic is featured throughout all of the movies, and the gist is he overcomes the predators who are chasing him, recovering certain bits of his memory to figure out who he was before he became a super agent called Jason Bourne. And what he gradually uncovers is that he doesn't like what he was, but now has free will to choose a different direction. The Bourne Supremacy is a propulsive narrative centered on a protagonist played by Matt Damon who we can like or not like. For myself... I really like this guy. I respond to him. I am an Irish-descended person, and so is Matt Damon. And so there is a way I see myself projected on the screen when he's there performing the role. Most important to the narrative of this movie, he doesn't talk a lot. He takes action. And that is pure classic style. Mostly with the exception of a couple of big dialogue dumps of expository information to jump us into the story, this is a silent movie. There's a lot of sound that moves us along, particularly as Bourne enters the chase or is chased by the baddies that surround him, whether they are black operatives from the U.S. government or the minions of a Russian oligarch that he's trying to roll up. The details of the story, let's be blunt, they're not terribly important to us. The reason we're watching this movie is to see if Jason Bourne can survive all that he is facing as obstacles to his hero's quest, and this protagonist is generally up to the task. The inciting event that makes the movie go is Jason Bourne, having faded out from the Bourne identity, the first and previous adventure, has started to live an anonymous life with his girlfriend Marie in India. She is accidentally killed where he is the target, and that causes him to want to figure out who wants to kill him and why and bring them down. He goes across the world, engaging his foe, learning more information about who he is, who he was, and who is pulling the strings chasing him. All along the way, violence is done all around him. Importantly, because after all, this is the story of a morally good character who was once an immoral killing machine. Uncovering these aspects of himself, Bourne makes choices throughout the narrative to not do harm and pull back. In fact, in the course of this movie, though many people will be killed, much destruction is visited on a great many moving vehicles. Jason Bourne himself only kills one person, a former black operative like him who attacks him and threatens his life. It's a self-defense murder. 
The important thing along the way is he's constantly being trailed by a different set of CIA personnel, led by Pamela Landy, and that's Joan Allen. She's trying to figure out who controls Jason Bourne, who he is and was, and what he's out there trying to do. And that puts her into loggerheads with a man named Ward Abbott, played by Brian Cox. They sit down in one pivotal sequence and have a real talking to. Operation Treadstone. Never heard of it. It's not going to fly. With all due respect, Pam, I think you might have wandered a little past your pay grade. That's a warrant from Director Marshall granting me unrestricted access to all personnel materials associated with Treadstone. I want to know about it. Know about it? It was a kill squad, black on black. We closed it down two years ago. Nobody wants to know about Treadstone, not around here. So I think you better take this back to Marty and let him know exactly what you're doing. He does. I've been down to the archives. I have the files, Ward. Let's talk about Conklin. What do you have to pound? You want to fry me? You want my desk, is that it? I want to know what happened. What happened? Jason Bourne happened. You got the files. Then let's cut the crap. Conklin had these guys wound so tight they were bound to snap. Bourne was his number one. The guy went for a job, screwed the up, never came back. Conklin couldn't fix it, couldn't find Bourne, couldn't adjust. It all went sideways. So you had Conklin killed? I mean, if we're cutting the crap. I've given 30 years and two marriages to this agency. I've shoveled shit on four continents. I'm due to retire next year. But if you think I'm going to sit here and let you dangle me with this, you can go to hell. And Marshall, too. It had to be done. And Bourne, where is he now? Dead in the ditch. Drunk in a bar in Mogadishu. Who knows? I think I do. I had a deal going down in Berlin last week. And during the buy, both our case officer and the seller were killed. They were killed by Jason Bourne. Obviously, the value of this sequence is they drop a whole bunch of news on us about what has happened, especially if we're not familiar with the Bourne identity, and this is our first occasion to meet these characters in this story world now. We also hear things are quite fast-moving. This movie does not lack momentum, and that's one of its great strong suits. Coupled with Paul Greengrass's attempt to make sure that we have a handheld camera constantly following the action, Greengrass as director is known for this sort of technique, and it causes us to be closely bonded with whoever our point of view character is in any given scene. Usually it's Jason Bourne as he negotiates various obstacles, whether it's listening in on phone calls, running away from people who would do him harm, traveling on a train. We're all always very close to him with a handheld jittery camera. Importantly, this handheld jittery camera and lots of coverage from a great many angles that help us really understand where we are in the story world involves a terrific amount of cutting. Much of this movie is told to us in visual fragments that are assembled very thoughtfully by the editors Christopher Rouse and Richard Pearson, who, working with Greengrass's imagery produced by Oliver Wood, the cinematographer, focused largely on Matt Damon. We have an almost all-visual environment. There are also certain moments when the movie pauses so that Jason can speak his piece and learn a little dribble 
of what's happening in the background that he's not aware of. There's one pivotal scene when a previous character from the earlier movie, who's something of a psychological and logistics control for the black operation, he kidnaps her briefly. Her name is Nikki, played by Julia Stiles, and tries to figure out what's going on. What do you people want with me? Why are you trying to frame me? Please, I'm only here because of Paris. Abbott dragged us. Abbott, who's Abbott? Conklin's boss. He, he shut down Treadstone. Is he here in Berlin? Did he run Treadstone? <laughs> Did he run Treadstone? Yes, Conklin reported to him. As we move along, though, we do realize in this movie we're building to a conclusion, and that conclusion features the assassin who killed Marie, played by Franca Potent, early in the movie. This is Kirill, played by Carl Urban. These two, that is Kirill and Bourne, have a tete-a-tete. But this is done entirely through a car chase through the streets and tunnels of Moscow, going for minutes with many cars piling up and piling up and piling up until finally Bourne is successful, defeats Kirill, and walks away to conclude the movie by confessing the fact he is an assassin and murdered the parents of a child who's now grown up. He sneaks into her apartment, confronts her, and explains, I am the one who did this terrible thing. You've been told a lie that they harmed each other. It was me, and I'm sorry. And he walks away, opening to the next sequel in the series, The Bourne Ultimatum, then The Bourne Legacy, and then Jason Bourne. The brilliance of Bourne, though, is he's physically capable and can take apart most any opponent with his fisticuffs, but he's also wicked smart in using technology tools and statecraft to figure out ways to move around the surveillance state and escape its view. Thinking about how all of us are trapped in a world where our phones can identify us to a pinpoint within a meter to a satellite in space, to the fact that we're sometimes looked at through cameras, whether it's in convenience stores or ATM machines or at traffic intersections, all of us are known and can be pinpointed. And it's valuable, I think, for each of us to psychologically experience a character who can outsmart the system which has been built to trap all of us. It's a fantasy, of course, but watching Bourne push his way through the obstacles that face him, figure out the solution to the problem, who am I, and why are these people trying to kill me, and come out the other side, is indeed a better narrative exploration of life than my daily struggle to get up, eat breakfast, bathe, have some coffee, walk the dog, repeat day after day. This is a completely contained, beginning, middle, and end, a narrative that holds together propelled in a linear fashion through expert technique to make something very exciting come to life. And there's Moby. Street ways are back again. Street places I didn't know. I broke everything new again. Everything that I don't. I threw it out the windows, came along. Street ways I know will part the colors of my sea. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boopity doo.